G'day everyone, and this is Mitch Stocker now talking to you from Life in the Peloton. And of course, I'm joined with Lionel Burney, and it's bloody great to talk to you, Lionel. Hello, Mitch. It's great to hear you actually speaking to me rather than coming through my speakers from the Tour de France coverage where you made your your Tour de France and cycling podcast debut, travelling with Richard and Francois and Kate for the week. And uh, I have to say, really enjoyed, uh, and I had no doubt that I would enjoy your contributions, but I really enjoyed uh, your contributions. And you had a lot more success in the mix zone talking to the riders th- than I do. I can't work out why they would stop to talk to you uh, more readily than they do stop to talk to me. But that's one of life. <laughs> I, did, I did have a lot of fun in the mix zone. It was, it was really funny. And, and Richard kept saying to me, you can't do that. You can't, you know, troll the riders. I'm like, why not? That's just what I normally do in the bunch. So this is exactly the same, except the best part is I don't have to race with them until sort of two weeks time in Tour of Poland. Um, it was just a really great experience and really eye-opening to be on the other side of the fence. Um, very fatiguing. You know, I have to admit, as much as I wanted to say it was an easy job, the fatigue caught up with me in a couple of days. Very different fatigue to a a high-level sportsman because what we do is, sure, it's very fatiguing, but it's a very intense way and you get a lot of recovery. But what you guys do is it's a slow burn. It's up early, it's to bed late, and it's just a slow burn. And I tell you what, my body was not attuned to that. It wasn't accustomed to it. So I was was wrecked. I was bloody wrecked. I was trying to do a few rides and um, I wasn't really performing that well when I was riding, but I did enjoy the fresh air and I saw that side of the beautiful beautiful side of exercising in, in such a job. Just to, for any listeners who don't know the term mix zone, uh, let's explain. I mean, it's your first time on the other side of the fence, as you say, Mitch, but after the finish or, or at the start, there's a mix zone where uh, the journalists all wait in their little pens, all fenced in. Uh, you, you have to go in the one that's allocated to your nationality, don't you? Uh, or the nationality of your media. So I guess you would have been going in the, the UK, US, Australia box and then the riders come to you and and uh, you can either speak to the press officers and and uh, set up a chat with a rider or at the finish it really is like hailing a cab in in the rain in new york isn't it you have to get your arm up and uh, yell across the street to uh, get someone's attention and that's why for us journalists it's very easy for the riders who just want to get back to the bus to just sort of look the other way or pretend they haven't heard whereas uh, mitch you know they they all know you from rubbing shoulders with you in the peloton so that was why you were having a, a bit more luck. But the, the, the whole world on that other side of the fence, the, 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 from the mix zone to the press room to, uh, you know, the, the, the types of hotels that we stay in, uh, I guess pretty different to what you're used to. Very different. And I found out the hard way, if you don't have one of those golden um, lanyards, as in the, the Tour de France lanyard with your pass on it, it's very difficult to get anywhere at the Tour de France. Very tight security. And as a rider, you're not really that used to that because, you know, the doors are always open in front of you and obviously you expect to be able to get where you need to go. Um, And that was quite different too, you know. Excuse me, mate, you can't come in here, you know, type thing. Um, And, yeah, obviously they didn't say it like that. But um, it was, like I said, it was very eye-opening and, um, you know, a little little snippet into the future life, which I know is not too far away, um, but... Before then, I've still got some racing coming. And even before that, we've got a, an, another podcast up. Life in the Peloton is back on track. And this time, I spoke with a teammate of mine, Magnus Court Nielsen. He is from Denmark. And he was actually a teammate of mine back on Orica Green Edge. And uh, we had a couple of years apart where he moved to Astana and I moved across to EF. But in a couple of years after that, he came across to EF, which I was very happy to be back with him because he's a great guy, very Danish. And as you'll know what I mean, if you listen to the podcast, they've got, you know, a very, he's very direct. He knows what he wants, very calculated. And that's what I love about him. His career is very calculated. His decisions are very calculated. And a lot of the time he's, he's spot on with his calculations. So... I guess without further ado, Lionel and I will have a chat at the end of this episode too, so hang in for that. But sit back and enjoy this one and a little insight to where Magnus has grown up on a small island just off the shore of Denmark. Well, here we go. Here we are. We're back racing. I'm here at, I like to call this race Route de Sud because that was the name of this race when I first raced it. But it's actually called La Route de Ocotane. 
and I'm sitting here with one of my teammates. I've actually been on the team with this guy, two different teams. So, long-time teammate. Welcome to the podcast, Magnus Court Nielsen. Yeah, thanks a lot. I've been uh, looking forward to, to this uh, moment when I would be uh, invited. <laughs> Getting the call up. But you got to tell me how to say your name properly because I, in English, we don't say it correctly. How do you say your name in Danish? Yeah, in, in Danish, I say uh, Magnus Court Nielsen. But uh, I think Denmark is such a, a small country, so uh, already from, from school, we, we learn to pronounce our names a little bit uh, differently in, in English. Speaking of small countries... Let's speak about where you're from. And I know you've just done... Many people ask you about this. Once they find out this tidbit of information is the thing that a lot of people talk to you about. It's your island. Magnus was brought up on an island and the island is pronounced Bornholm. Well, that's the way I say it anyway. A small Danish island in the Balearic Sea just off Denmark. Tell me about the island. Tell me about what it was like growing up on an island because the island is only... 40 k's north to south, 30 k's east to west, and about 140 k's in circumference. So it's pretty small. What's it like being like full islander? Maggie, what was life like on the island, Bornholm? Yeah, it was a, a nice childhood. It's not like a, a really, really crazy small island. It's big enough to have uh, many different uh, schools and uh, and uh, towns. I think in, in Denmark, we, we have a lot of uh, islands, and, and this one is... It's the largest island that is not connected uh, with a bridge. And then uh, it also is far away from, from the, the, the rest of Denmark to the, to the east. Uh, so actually the, the nearest land we have is, uh, is Sweden. And, uh, and uh, to describe the position, it's pretty much uh, north of the German-Polish uh, border, actually. Because what I was reading up, I did a little bit of history on it. It's actually been like in, invaded a little bit with Sweden. It was was it Swedish at some point, and then it was Danish, and then what happened during the war as well? Tell me a little bit about the island. Tell me some history about it. It's a pretty interesting little place. Yeah, a, a lot has uh, happened and has changed uh, also uh, o- over the years back back in history. Uh, first of all, Denmark is one of the the oldest countries in in the world, so so there's a a long history and is that uh, fact is it uh, yeah one one of the oldest yeah yeah uh, what are the oldest do you know off the top of your head because you, you're quite a knowledgeable guy and I'm, I'm assuming you do know what the oldest what are they give us give us the top five no i, I don't know i think that's a, a hard one also to to define uh when uh, exactly <laughs> do you call something a, a country and when is it the region growing into a country okay. and uh but um yeah, it goes back a long way, and Denmark used to be a lot uh, bigger than than it is now, um, and that's also one of of the reasons that the the island is lying so uh, isolated because uh, the south part of of Sweden has been uh, Danish, not for the last three hundred fifty years, but but before that, uh, but but the island uh, ended up staying staying Danish. Uh, uh, yeah, it was was also inv- invaded by, by by the Swedes. But yeah, a, a brave uh, Danish guy uh, rode down on a horse and and shot the Swedish general in in the back. <laughs> and Is that uh, a brave, yeah, brave you call that <laughs> shooting him in the back. <laughs> yeah, he he, he kept uh, or, or got it back on, on on Danish hands. Yeah, and as late as uh, Second World War, I think it was a pretty interesting uh, time in, in history for for Bonholm, um because we got the uh, it was the Russians that uh, freed us from from the Germans, not the rest of the Allies with with the British and, and Americans. And the the German general he he didn't want to to give up, so so they had to to bomb pretty heavily the the Russians uh, the island and. Uh, Afterwards, they stayed for almost a year. Mm. So even though the Russians, the Russian state, yeah. So even though the the war was over, people were going around and, and being nervous for for a long time if if the Russians would like properly stay and, and make it into a, a bit of 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 Russia. But uh, finally, they uh, they left too. Did you have any family there at that point? No, I didn't. So it would not have uh, influenced me. Uh, my family have moved uh, uh, over uh, later. So tell me how you guys ended up as in the Court Nielsen family ended up in on Bonholm. Yeah, we are a bit against uh, what's actually been going on for, for the last many years. A, a lot of people have been uh, leaving and, and less is, is coming, but uh, my family has, has been coming from my uh, mom's side. Her, her parents moved over there. I think they, they found it as a really nice place and uh, 
then she she found my my dad and, and brought him with me and uh, and got the kids and and now actually also my my dad's size of of the family has moved there so so i have uh, pretty much my my whole family yeah i did notice that because i saw back in 1965 the population was about 48,000, and now it's around about 42 so over those years i know that's a long time and it's only whatever it is six thousand or whatever but people have been leaving you said that is there any real reason why what's been going on with that yeah a lot of of young people is leaving uh, naturally they uh, if you want any longer education you have to leave you you, you can't get a uh, basic uh, education there but uh, uh, there's no universities or anything like that so uh, then then you leave and uh, for a long time uh, people did not end up coming back some would come back when uh, when they were having kids like my uh, my mom she also left and but but then uh, brought brought the family back over and then you will have people coming back again when when they retire so you have a lot of of retired people old people and uh, and uh, families with, uh, with with kids but in the gap from from 20 to 30 there, there's really not there not many people around including me yeah. i have left and, and there's not uh, living there well let's talk about that leaving because from what i understand you started writing at the age of 12 with your father and I want you to talk a little bit about this but when you got to the age of 16 you also left to pursue the sport of cycling at a at a at a sports school tell me a little bit about that time between the age of 12 and 16 where from what I understand you were doing a little bit of everything you're doing a bit of mountain biking you're doing a bit of cross riding a bit of road riding how did that love for cycling start to formulate on the island? You know, was it your dad or was there a good culture there? How did cycling start for you? Yeah, I, I always did a lot of uh, sports growing up, track and field and, and, and running in particular. And uh, I got a, a road bike when I was 12 at the same time as, as my dad. We both got one. Uh, oh, your dad wasn't riding yet? Uh, he wasn't riding. He he liked it. And, and we had done occasionally in, in the summer on, on good days, just some rides on the, on our town bikes. Obviously, like like rest of Denmark, uh, cycling is, is in, in the culture. And I've always had a bike and, and enjoyed it. Yeah, we, we got a, a, both a road bike at the same time and, and starting riding a bit on that. Only, yeah, o- only trips, no, no, no racing. But slowly I got into to racing both... Uh, at that time, there was only one club on the island, but they had a, a few races, not any big races. I would race uh, with maybe one or two other guys in, in my age group, and uh, then we would, would race with the guys from maybe 50 to 60 or whatever was kind of suitable. In same speed. Uh, same yeah. speed, yeah. So so we were starting the the bunch race with uh, with six guys, maybe. Is there is there many roads there? Like, is it good to train there? Yeah, it, it's really good because it's... it's uh, pretty small you don't have uh, any big roads and, and there's not much traffic and and you have a lot of, of small roads Denmark is really uh, developed with, with the farmland so, so you have many farmers roads uh, mm. but uh, with, with tarmac on and uh, so, so you have uh, so many roads still there's uh, roads there that, that I don't really uh, know exactly where they really? go really yeah I thought you would have known all the roads there obviously I will never lose like yeah, where, where I am but you but, seriously but, haven't ridden every road there no. It's only forty. It's only a hundred k around. How could you like? It's only forty k, thirty k. It's just. It's actually a, a lot of roads. Yeah, there, there's really a lot of roads. Uh-huh. If you're in there on, on, on the small roads in 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 the fields, many parts, uh, then uh, every every kilometer you you can take a, a new road to to cool. left or right. So it would be like small small roads, uh, and maybe I've been on on most of them, but but for sure many of them I I, I don't uh, remember exactly what what's lying around the corner. So tell me about this next phase of life because this is a big step for anyone to move away from home. But you went across across the sea to Denmark to mainland to go to a sports school to pursue your study alone. Your mum and dad were still back on the island. Tell me about that next period. Was it to follow the dream of cycling or was it just to get better education? What was that purpose of that move for you to go across to Denmark at that point? Uh, yeah, the the particular school was uh, was to focus on on cycling, uh, but uh, it is quite a, a big thing in Denmark that when you are those fifteen, sixteen years old, you you do your uh, your last year in school before, or say maybe probably like high school. Then you would do that at a school away where where you live, and uh, so you get many new friends. Oh, me- like a meet. boarding school, almost. Yeah, yeah, probably kind of. Uh, you just do do one year. Some 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 do 
do two years there. But many of them have have a theme. So so usually it's not something elite, but but you can have musicians or uh, pure football schools. But but this school I went to had a few different uh, branches, but was serious in in the the direction of sport you were doing. So. So I was uh, a bike rider, so so they have. Uh, I was purely only like riding my bike as as the extra sport uh, I was I was doing. Were there other people pursuing cycling at that school? Yeah, we were. I think fifteen uh, cyclists, and and two of them were were girls. And then uh, the other sports was uh, dancing and uh, soccer, handball, golf. I think uh, I think that was the. the Are there any riders? who have come through that school or were in your class that we know today not from uh, from my generation or, or from my my year i think uh, emil vignepo one uh ss quebecer he he's been there later wow so, yeah. oh there we go all right well cool so you were there and was that difficult at that point at 16 years old to go away or were you just like bit of freedom bit of fun you know boarding school pursuing your dream cycling on the mainland was that the sort of feeling or you were a bit sad to leave home no in the beginning it was really nice i think later on the the last couple of months was was getting hard uh, because uh, obviously i was still doing a a year of school so uh, there was a lot of homework there and combining it with with the cycling just uh, took a lot of of the energy out of of me i think so and then I wasn't so much involved with the with the whole social life, which is also a big uh, part of of being there. But uh, yeah, I got through it, and uh, and I actually went went to a a different school, also with a bit of of the same theme. But but instead of yeah doing normal school, it was focused on being a, a bike mechanic. That's uh, education mm-hmm. in in Denmark, and uh, that was a bit uh, easier the the school side. So we have more uh, more time, freedom, uh, and more energy to to relax and enjoy ourselves and because that cycling school was we were only 12 guys so we were going in the normal class with the, the, the rest of people wanting that same education but we got left out at, at one we could uh, go out and, and, and do our training Would you train together one big bunch or you just go off on your own? No we were, we were trained together we, we had a coach there coming with us every every day Oh that's um, cool I can't believe that it's so foreign for me to think like in Australia you just have, you have cycling and just be like alright See you guys. I'm going to go training now. I'm just cruising around the city. You know, is that the feeling? Was it like that, or was it really serious? No, I, I don't know. It was doing a efforts mixture. and fake races and things like that. Yeah, we we were doing. It was full on. We, we had uh, we had training uh, program uh, from from the coach there, who was also uh, a mechanic. Was teaching the the older students. But that was a, a really good uh, good time on on, the, on that second school. I I really enjoyed that. It, it was also a little bit better because. Uh, we only had one uh, training session a day where the first school in order to fit in with uh, soccer and handball and most other sports i think you, you often train twice a day so then uh, the training sessions was yeah split up and uh, that's a bit hard for for cycling so we would sometimes get up early in the morning to get two and a half hours of training instead of one and a half and sometimes in the afternoon we could be allowed to uh, to miss out uh, on on one lecture maybe to to do a longer training but then we have to to do that that in in the evening um but, but on the second school we yeah we were we could leave at at one and, and do uh, one, one long uh, ride so so that was a lot better so tell me about when was this idea formulating for you potentially like hang on i could become professional here or i want to become professional or this this life of a pro cyclist this is something i really want to do was that something that you were feeling because like what i see is 2011 Things were coming together. You you won the junior national title on the road. You won the junior national cyclocross title. So you were getting a touch. People were understanding who you were as a rider on the national level. So this idea, I guess, at that point was presenting itself like, oh, maybe I can follow this dream. Maybe I can be a pro. Maybe, I don't know. Was this idea coming to you or you was just doing it for a bit of love at this point and schooling and it was you, you, you like cycling or sport? When did this idea for you come to be like i want to be pro yeah for sure in, in 2011 it, it was there i don't know exactly uh when it came before i think it it, it grows maybe a, a bit more from from being a little uh, dream as, as a kid uh until your things was going well 
the older you get and 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 when you're still on track then it maybe gets a bit more like a, a serious dream that, that you can actually believe in instead of just thinking oh, i'll be the next uh, messi when when you're five years old i mm. think a lot of of kids is, is dreaming uh, about that yeah but for the 2011 season i, I changed my focus uh, to the road from from doing a lot of different sports i slowly transformed into cycling but then my main focus had been mountain biking uh, still doing a bit of of road and uh, and for 2011 i i changed over to uh, to, to be focusing on 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 the road and, and that paid uh, off really well because you beat craig anderson in the in the junior title i saw is that true yeah we came uh, in a in a small breakaway uh, to the finish and then and i beat him in in, in the sprint uh, <laughs> So that was that was great. He was riding for <laughs> that was great. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he was he was riding for for the biggest uh, junior team. Uh, you, you have teams in in Denmark as as juniors. They had been dominating and winning all. We have we have like a, a cup in Denmark as well. They won every single. Uh, yeah, racing that cup except for the the nationals where when were i they, were they really aware of you or were you a bit of an unknown guy at that point no they knew me because i'd also been been with a national team and and i won actually the the peace race oh, which yeah. is uh i think the, the, the biggest uh, stage race uh, for for juniors so i think my my name was uh, pretty well uh, known and as, uh, as juniors also in in europe well that was when i started to get to know your name just before you signed professional with green edge there was this rustling around of the best amateur or best under 23 coming through was you magnus because when you joined colt or colt energy team you know the first year 2013 and then especially 2014 when you really were on fire i think you had 10 wins that year or something around there, was it? Yeah, uh, I think UCI wins, and then obviously a few uh, wins in, in Denmark and other places. There, there wasn't the UCI uh, races. And you attracted the attention of Green Edge. Tell me about those two years at Colt, because we're fast-forwarding a little bit here, but it seemed like things were really clicking, and you were really going through the gears very quickly, and quickly became one of the most sought-out young, well, neo-pros for the following year, 2015. Um, tell me about that, those couple of years at Colt there. Yeah, uh, I had my first year as 123 and, and 12, which was going all right. Uh, I didn't win anything, but uh, already in uh, in 13, I uh, I took uh, two professional wins in uh, two stages of, of two of Denmark. So that was uh, a huge, uh, not only for me, but also for the team. I was the first continental rider ever to to win a, a stage right? in, in that race yeah cool Jakob Fulsa he, he won the race overall obviously many years uh, earlier but but that was without winning a, a stage, stage. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah and since it has been been done by by other uh, Danish riders yeah, but you were the first I like that and I'm already uh, in the end of, of that or I think after two of Denmark I actually got an offer from uh, from uh, this team uh, back in the what was it called giant and uh, no uh, Garmin. Ah, uh, oh, from Garmin. Yeah, right from this mm. team. Yeah, EF. So yeah. it was called Garmin. Yeah, actually, it was called Garmin then. Yeah, the Garmin team in so 2012. No, for the 2014 season yeah, after okay. the, the 13, uh, yeah. my, my two first uh, professional wins. So I was going well, and I think some guys they they turn pro as soon as they can, and and for sure it was also tempting for me to to do so. But I got advice to to wait a year. There. Who advised you on that? Both my uh, uh, team manager uh, at that time, and uh, also the the national coach under twenty three, who was my uh, also my personal uh, trainer, and I was talking with my dad. And uh, what were you thinking at that point? Were you like every other young guy going, "I really want to go. I really want to go." And but these guys were saying, "Look, you should wait." And you think, mm, "I respect these guys. I'll listen." Or you were already thinking, "I don't want to go." What was your thought in that time? Uh, yeah, obviously I had many thoughts. I think I was listening a lot, also because uh, Denmark had had before I turned pro a, a bad history of a lot of talents turning professional and then only getting the first or maybe one or, or two more contracts, but not like uh, yeah having a, a full career and and not any big big results. So uh, that made me want to wait. Also, it was only my my second year uh, under twenty three. So even if I had a a really bad year the year after. I would still have one more year to make up for it in the, in the under twenty three category, which is where you you kind of of want to be be turn pro uh, in your under twenty three uh, career. Mm. That's a little bit easier. You you have the the window of of the nations cup mm. to show yourself off in. And I think if if you're older than that, uh, 
yeah th- then you have to take the contract but but i was so young so yeah i thought uh, i can wait uh, one more year and it paid out really well i, I had many uh, big results the year after and it was uh, a big step wasn't it and, you know and it felt like you the first year was like great i'm feeling good then you know the second year was like okay now i found my straps and almost like you were ready to make the step to the professionals year after yeah i think so it, it turned out uh, pretty well uh, coming to uh, to greenwich where where you also were my my teammate i think for a couple of reasons i was living on my own uh, in in denmark already so i was new uh, used to that part i think uh, that can be a hard if you probably the same for, for australians if if you're used to living with your mom and dad on a, a lower level of cycling and suddenly you move to a different con- country you don't speak a language you live alone you have a big big team you don't know anybody it's a lot of of new things in at, at the same time but uh for me it was a smaller change the l- last two years on on cold i was already only cycling i didn't have any schools or, or studies uh, or work besides so so i was used to to having that as as my only focus uh, for the day and and also living by myself when you think back to those times and the steps you made are you ever in a position to give advice now to young guys coming through because i see it as a very mature sort of thinking in those times like you spoke about many young guys when given that opportunity jump at it this is my chance i'm gonna go sometimes the window does close you know but like you said you you held strong you knew you still had time you had the the confidence in yourself and even that that second thing you mentioned there is living out of home and experiencing that and when you made the jump to the world tour you weren't doing all those steps at once now i'm big time pro now i'm living away from home bang 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 you know are you able to ever pass on this advice to young guys coming through now the young danish guys or you haven't had that that opportunity yet not that i don't want to pass it on but i but i think i don't yeah know m- many of them actually because uh yeah quite quickly uh mm. the, the they grow older they come new new young guys up that i've never raced with and uh since i don't live in denmark i, I don't uh, see them or, or or know them yeah sometimes you just have to to jump at the opportunity also i uh, i think if if you're a little bit older than than i was then even if it's a small uh pro-continental team that's maybe the only chance you have to, to get a le- leg inside and uh, then then you have to to take it and, and hope for the best but uh yeah if you are first or second year under 23 uh, i think you should almost always uh, wait we see now the the last few years have been some some really young riders coming through and, and doing well on on the world tour so uh, for sure that's also uh, possible but but there's a, a risk that uh, that there could could be too much at at one time yeah let's talk about your first year in green edge because i remember and this is something that i love about your personality is this is just an exterior thing it could not be true you can tell me if i'm wrong here it seems like to me you're very calculated and you've got things worked out that you know work for you you're like okay i know what i'm gonna do and i know that works for me that's the way i'm gonna do it and i'm gonna tell a little story here the first time i experienced this magnus rocks up to the first green edge training camp and he's a neo pro and we're out in australia and in those times the team was bringing out the new guys to australia the team had been existing for a couple of years so they said anyone who's new on the team europeans come out to australia we'll show you australia you'll do a mitchelton winery ride and all this sort of stuff we're at this training camp and we're up in bright going up the mountains and stuff and magnus was just neo pro it's december or whatever it was november and he's like no it's november and i'm gonna ride it 200 watts or whatever it was and that's what i'm gonna do he didn't get caught up in the game he didn't just follow the wheels of the big riders or the guys that he thought were good big old pros or whatever i better just stay with these guys as long as i can and impress them and get dropped he's like no this is my endurance phase and as soon as we got to the first hill he would just stay at 200 watts and he would just be half an hour behind sticking to his program doing what and i remember thinking to myself who does this guy think he is has he has he know what he's doing and then it was only a couple of years later or a year later i thought how's the balls on this guy he's just and once you started showing your true colors in the racing i thought this guy's got it worked out he's like confidence he knows what to do and it was really refreshing to see a young guy who didn't get caught up in the game and knew what he wanted to do now what i want to ask you is 
was that just a complete fluke or was that true about your personality you really are calculated and you're comfortable in your own judgment yeah that's funny you, you bring it up uh, uh i had the, the story also from uh, uh simon clark uh, which uh, i again with with teammates with on on ef last year at the time i think i, I didn't think about it at all yeah i think the training camp started in, in november and going into to december and uh, many of you guys had the nationals coming up down under and and other races uh, where i was brought in just to yeah see australia and uh, yeah m- meet the team as well but uh, the the program uh, for me was uh, set to start same as as i've done before on, on continental level i think last weekend of of february or first weekend of march maybe so i had also a training camp in south africa and in january and one in february in, in spain so i had a long time to, to get in, in shape yeah I, I, at the time i didn't think about it being so crazy that <laughs> i just wanted to ride because that was what i always did in, in november and december no efforts just just base miles the same low watts uh and I remember, it was a little bit of of a fight we had dave uh Mac, McPartland, yeah. McPartland, uh, there. And uh, I remember my coach had spoken with him and they were all happy. Yeah, yeah, you you can just ride. And I think m- most days it was not a problem. We did many loops that was like out and back on a big mountain. So so all you guys would, would make it to the top and I would just uh, turn around when you, when you came uh, came back down. But then uh, after two or three days, he was pushing me again and saying, ah, oh, maybe you should do these uh, efforts. And I was like, oh, you spoke with my coach. It's all fine. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. And then it would be two or three days. He would come again and say, ah, oh, maybe you can do the, the efforts today. And there's yeah. absolutely nothing wrong with that. I, I love that the confidence was there. But you can probably see now being professional for probably, I don't know, close to 10 years now. If you think about a Neo Pro coming in now and doing something like you, maybe you would think, oh, wow, this is this could be interesting. Especially, you know, not especially, but if they don't go on to do something, then it's especially like, what the hell does this guy know? You went on to become who you are now, which, um, you know, that's what I want to talk about now. Second year in Green Edge, the first year in Green Edge, you're sort of finding your feet. Um, and I want to just jump straight to the second year and more specifically to the Vuelta España. You had your first professional win. Well, your first, you weren't exactly in Green Edge then. You were in the national team and you won a stage of Tour of Denmark. So do you call that your first pro win? My first pro win, I would say already in 2013. In Colts. Yes, yeah, okay. I had four, four wins there. Well, then the first World Tour win, let's just, let's, I'll, I'll, I'll get around that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> first World Tour win, let's go straight to the Vuelta. And this is a pretty epic win. I've recently just watched the backstage pass of it when I was doing a bit of research. And what I love about this win is the team wasn't really focused on you. Um, you'd had a couple of results early on, a third in another sprint. But is this something that works for you? And I'm working with you over the last few years. I think it is something that when you're a bit more of an underdog or there is another objective in the team, there's a little bit of support for you, but there's not a massive big entourage around you you know you've left on left to do your own thing this is sort of the case at stage 18 in the Vuelta they were looking after Chavez there you know there was a lot of objectives and you know from what I understand you can tell the story you even were trying to set up Chavez before the sprint hold him out of the wind till 5k to go and then you went I might just have a go at this sprint full bunch sprint and you won the bunch sprint tell me about how it happened but then also about the actual emotion of winning your first grand tour stage and that feeling of oh i've I've arrived on the on the big stage yeah uh first of all i think you are right that sometimes it feels like the wins i have to they fall a little bit random down from from the sky and and i grab them there it's not always it has worked setting setting it up i also have some some wins where 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 it has been uh, been the plan the whole day uh but that stage stage 18 was was definitely not the plan I've been a few other sprint days earlier in in the in the race and uh, yeah third on on one stage and then some bad luck and yeah so in the, in the end we had two guys up <coughs> in GC with with Chavez and and uh, and uh, one of the the Yates brothers yeah, and I was sitting with with Yates we were kind of doing a a thing and and the, the other guys kind of had uh, had Chavez uh, he was uh, 
or he finished third at least and, and Yeji was finished fifth there was already that uh, little uh, uh, time difference between the two of them so so the young guys stayed together and, and then the uh, rest of, of the team kind of had, had their thing but I was specifically told not to sprint I think we had a sprint day the, the day before or maybe it was two days before where I already I still had the, the arrow suit on with small like hope of, of doing something but it's warm and if you have to get bottles and then you prefer to have a, a normal jersey so for stage 18 I had the normal jersey didn't expect anything uh, and then the positioning with with these guys just went really well I didn't use too much energy coming in and I think around 3k's to go I could see I was sitting in good position with the HG on my wheel and Charles was also in good position and he still had Bewley and maybe Swine Toft and like I think they also had a good run so I was thinking ah I just uh, <laughs> leave him here and, and then do uh, do my own uh, own thing for, for the last uh, two or three k's uh, because I was already in, in the front and, and I hadn't really touched the wind uh, too much and uh, somehow it, it worked out with a, with a win and then everybody was happy nobody is talking about that I've got specifically told not to uh, not to sprint but I, I love this because this is something I try and give some people advice if they've asked but when you get your chance you've got to take it regardless of the consequences you've got to be willing to take on if it doesn't happen, you've got to be willing to go, well, just say you'd finish 10th or 15th and, you know, someone had crashed and then everything would have gone to shit and you would have got your ass kicked. But you've got to be willing to take your chance and go, well, I'm going to have to wear it if it doesn't work today. And that's what you did, but it came off and everyone's always happy when it comes off. Yeah, I think you have to be really careful when, when you do something like that, like making sure that I don't at least my job until the, the 3K sign. So, so time should should be there's no no more time gaps in in gc and uh yeah th- then you can look into it i was going really well also climbing uh very well uh and so that was probably why why i while i felt uh now i just give it a crack i was <laughs> feeling good because sometimes in a bunch sprint you also sit already on max heart rate anyway at, at, at 3k out now anyway and yeah. you almost have nothing to to sprint with but if you're sitting there at, at 3k to go still like fairly relaxed it's, it's a bike race it's going fast but if if you still have something uh, left then uh, that's a good sign and you kind of know okay this is a, a chance and then you you need to, to 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 take that what was it like first of all for you when you got when you won that feeling of like oh i just won and then secondly what was the team's reaction more so what was steve's reaction like yeah, I think everybody was uh, very, very happy. Uh, I actually don't remember when I saw for uh, when I saw Stevo the first time. Uh, sometimes when you win, it, it can take a while before you see the sports director because the cars go out on deviation in in the last minute. And uh, yeah, I will be on, on the finish line and then on the podium. But I think I remember Matthew White, our head sports director, was was there because uh, he was living really close oh that's right so, yeah. that's, uh, so I think I saw him and uh, obviously he was uh, very happy also <laughs> so it was great to, to see him and yeah uh, what about you? no it was uh, it was good I think it, uh, it's something you really have dreamed of as a kid it's now a win on not only the first win on the world tour but but in a grand tour mm. it's uh, really getting up there with, uh, with the big big uh, wins yeah, it was only my my second win uh, as a professional rider. I won uh, in the national kit in, in Tour of Denmark a, a few years earlier, a few weeks earlier. It's uh, also big to do it for for your uh, actual team. So now the next big thing for you was the tour in 2018. You move across to Astana, and you start really well after a pretty troublesome year in 2017. Cause 2017, you have a big crash in Yorkshire break your collarbone and I remember your comeback because it was in um, Ride London we actually rode for you there and you got second in the sprint there did this did this great lead out came around and Christoph ended up pipping you in the finish and what was that year like 217 and that transition into Astana what happened at the end there with Greenish it was just time to move on you're ready for a change was that troublesome year had anything to do with it what was that that shift there yeah, obviously, yeah, I broke the the collarbone that that takes uh, yeah some some time to heal, but but I don't remember it as a 
so troublesome uh, year. I think it was going going okay, but obviously after after I've done so well in in the world the, the year before, and uh, not only winning but also uh, climbing the best I've ever been uh, been climbing at, at that time. Yeah, maybe you, you could hope for for more than uh, what I got out of of seventeen. Uh, there was some some good results that, like that second place in in Ride Run London Classic, which is still my best uh, result in a one day race on on the World Tour. Is that right? Yeah, I've only won uh, uh, one uh, one day race, but but that was not a, a World Tour level one day race. Uh, I think actually at seventeen, I got really well off. I started winning there and in the Tour of Valencia also a stage. So mm. in February, I really came in strong, but then uh, yeah was maybe liking it a little bit and i don't know it, it wasn't me that i wanted to to change but uh i think uh Ulrika was uh or michelton uh they were struggling a little bit uh with the budget and uh yeah obviously i was worth uh, a bit more now with, with my two uh, stage wins in in the world uh, so uh, i had to to find uh, somewhere else and somewhere else you did because you started you know the running you started hot running it at astana in Oman, you had a stage win, also a stage win in Yorkshire, and then you went into the tour. And this is a pretty cool win. I remember watching this. Two guys in the breakaway. It was a, quite a big break. It got whittled down, and you had your your fellow countrymen there, Michael Valgren, who's now our teammate as well. You guys were in this break at the end of the tour, and the the attacks were going. And you followed this attack. Berka Molema hits out with about eight k to go. You'd already followed another attack before. You follow Molimar, and next thing you know, you get away with him and Izagire. You guys coming into the line. On paper, it's obvious what was going to happen there, in my eyes. You're a pretty quick sprinter, obviously winning that bunch sprint in the Vuelta just two years ago. Proper bunch sprint. What was it like for you, though? Is it is it just that simple, or was it now suddenly coming to you like, this is a chance to win a stage of the Tour de France? This isn't just a Grand Tour. This is the Tour. This is something that most kids dream of riding, then having a position to be in a chance of winning a stage, and then suddenly going, oh, I can really win this. What was those last sort of 8K like when you sort of realized Valgrim was back there blocking for you, the gap was open, you're with Molimar, who's a strong guy, but not a sprinter. Izagire can be dicey, but you're probably going to wrap him up. Run me through those final Ks what that feeling was like and when you sort of realize oh i'm gonna win this yeah um as you said we were two uh, two teammates with uh, michael valgren also uh, we were riding for astana and uh it had been a, a typical breakaway day from uh from kilometer zero or before you knew from from reading the roadbook that it would be a, a breakaway uh a hard day with a mountain in the middle but but a flat finish um and and the break has been caught in so we were seven or eight guys, I think, in in the final group uh, who had to to ride for it on on the flat roads. And uh, yeah, we were told in in the radio, me and Michael, we had the Danish sports director uh, Lars Mikkelsen behind us, uh, cheering on us in in Danish. He was telling us, "This is uh, our win. We have to win it." And he didn't care how we did it, as long as we uh, we won. <laughs> we, were, we were not riding for uh, for second because this is what you can end up doing I think in a situation like that you are attacking a bit you are coming away with one or two other guys and you're like okay this is good if I just ride hard they won't catch it from behind and then I'm secure on getting something. a podium I'm yeah. getting something but uh, we both knew that uh, yeah we were not riding for something we we had, had to, to win, win. Yeah. There, there were no other choice than the, the win was the only option yeah so we were attacking a bit and, and I get away in that uh, three-man group as you said and uh, I was feeling good still it had been a hard day but uh, I was on top of, of the pedals I knew like I have the legs I had uh, I knew I had a sprint sometimes there's something you can feel at the end of a bike race sometimes you know oh, I'm tired but I was like yeah there's a sprint in the legs yeah I'm still good yeah. I knew I have a sprint <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, and, and how were those boys looking were they looking like oh because because Molimer attacked first. Was it a hard attack to get across to? Were there any moments where you're like, oh, these guys are, oh, they, they're going good, or they just felt pretty crap? I don't think they felt crap, but, <laughs> uh, but like, the, this big selection had happened on a climb, and now we were 
down on, on the on the flat roads uh, where me and Michael uh, was probably the, the strongest guys on, on a flat finish like that. Uh, so having uh, another teammate and already you're in a terrain that, that suits you really well was, was good. And um, yeah, sitting with, uh, with those two guys coming in the, the last few case, I... I kind of have the final prepared. I often there's only so many things that can happen. Like they can attack or they can stop pulling or if you just know exactly what you're doing so you don't have to to think about it in the moment when it happens. So I knew okay, if one of them goes, I close him straight away. Because then it's not so hard to close an attack compared to if and then they get the gap and then you like one get a gap and you're I'm looking at Isagira and Isagira is looking at me and Moloma is at the same time just hammering on the pedals then he'll be a a hard man to to shut down but if you know straight away if he's going I'm just there in his wheel no questions asked and I think also they they could feel it probably that did they attack I didn't actually see no no nobody attacked so so that was also a bit weird normally if, if you're not a strong sprinter, at least you uh, just have to do it to say you tried. If you're going to lose the sprint and then it's not going to hurt your sprint that much, just doing, try. doing just try something. like You can't be lucky that they're sitting looking at each other. Seems like they were pretty happy just to get second or third. Yeah, I think Molomar, he, he definitely didn't have a, a good sprint, so uh, it seemed like uh, he was he was happy just to, to ride it in for, for the podium. And Izagure? I think he came up with a good sprint. I just had a, a better one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Let out uh, from the front and those guys got nowhere. What was that like? Tour de France stage, you're like, wow, it's happened. Yeah, that, that was insane. Yeah, uh, I, I just took the front and, and looking back, I was feeling the, the strongest. And uh, so I didn't want any of them uh, in my way, <laughs> almost. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was it was uh, really big because uh, even though the the world is big, it's a grand tour. The the tour is uh, it's a different level. It is bigger to to win a a one day uh, race, but I think maybe for the the normal and uh, not like bike interested person, then the winning a stage in the tour is means th- everything. That, that means everything. That's yeah. bigger than than the big one day races. They they don't really know those. But but if you say oh, I won a stage in the tour, they will be like oh shit, he is. Except for Roubaix. Roubaix trumps everything, I think. Yeah, it does, like, <laughs> in the world of cycling, but but you'll meet people on the, yeah, str- on the street. They, they, they Maybe they don't know Roubaix, but, but everybody knows uh, the Tour. And uh, that's true. not only I've been in the Tour, but, but I've won, won a stage there. It's a, it's a big thing. It's it's also something that never it never gets old. I think I have that uh, for the rest of my life. If if I won, uh, won I think, uh, four stages, if two of Denmark, but okay it's good but it's not mm. yeah now uh, some years ago and yeah whatever no but the tour stays the tour stays with you yeah let's talk about current days now we're back together at EF a couple of years at Astana and then you decided to come across to EF I left Green Edge and came across to EF and it really did feel and Jens Kukulé also came across he had two years at Lotto a good friend of ours we're all together at, at Mitchelton Green Edge Orica whatever you want to call it and then we all met back up at EF and it really, I don't know about you, but it really didn't feel like we'd been away from each other. It was a funny thing. These bonds we created back in that team, it just felt like we just weren't on the same program for two years and then all of a sudden we're back in the same team. How's your feeling been now across this team and the direction you want to go yourself? You've moved away from the Cobble Classics a little bit. You're starting to find out who you are as a rider, as you just sort of alluded there. You're a guy that needs or likes to have a bit of tension on the legs in the peloton. You personally, but also the other riders. Once the other riders get tired, it seems like to me you come into your own. This year, a great example in Paris-Nice. This was an amazing stage win when everyone was very, very tired and it seemed like you were just still doing the same old thing. What are you starting to discover about yourself now in the third team of your career? What are you learning about yourself and what sort of direction do you see yourself going coming up now with Magnus? Yeah, the direction for me that's also something I've been uh, been looking into and and thinking a bit about. Uh, of the first many years as professional, I've done the couple of classics and that's the the ones I wanted to do. I, I see them as the, the biggest uh, races, um, but that's not where I've had my my results when when I look back. So so looking at that, I was thinking, okay, maybe I should try and focus a bit more on on where I actually. Uh, have have done the best it's uh, in uh, stages in, in stage races and 
and then and grant to us so coming to to ef uh there was a bit of the plan not uh Yeah, not not going for the couple classics, but uh, a bit more stage races, a bit more yeah of these these stages with, with intermediate stages where you can't really say is it is it a it's not a pure sprint, maybe it's a breakaway, and it's it's really hard. Also hard main style. Uh, it's, it's hard hard <laughs> to also predict what's happening, but uh, yeah, if if I'm there at the end of a day, whether it's it's maybe a breakaway or, or a reduced bunch, uh, then I have a good chance uh, normally. But it's it's also really a hard days to uh, yeah to predict and uh, it can be difficult also for for a team to to control and, and set up uh, correctly where is magnus court going to live when he finishes cycling are you going to end up back at the island what's your plan mate you're now in andorra and then you go back to denmark sometimes sometimes you're in spain you're all around the place where are you going to end up you're going to be back on the island what's what's the future hold for magnus yeah i don't know i think uh For now, I don't have a, a girlfriend or a wife, so I, f- I think that can really change the the picture suddenly if if uh, she comes in and has an opinion uh, uh, of her own, uh, then then maybe I follow. Uh, otherwise, I, f- I think I could end up uh, on the island back on on Bornholm uh, nice. when, when I retire. I still haven't learned any Spanish or Catalan, uh, <laughs> so that's pretty impressive. I think after uh, join the club, <laughs> I'm horrible. Yeah. Uh, I really have done a bad uh, integration here, <laughs> but uh, so I don't think I will be living there I, uh, after my career. Uh, I really like it. For the training is great, and in, in both in, in Spain and Andorra, and uh, yeah, that, that was like the main reason. Also, there's a lot of bike riders I can I can go uh, training with, uh, but I think if I uh, I stop cycling, uh, I lose all of that and. Then I'm left in a, a country where where I can't really speak to to a lot of people. Nice, mate. Well, uh, it's been nice to get to know you today. I hope everyone's enjoyed understanding how what ticks, what's behind the the glasses. So thanks for being on the pod, mate. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, there we have it. Magnus Court Nielsen, a little insight to his life before he was a cyclist or as he grew up as a cyclist, but more importantly, his life now as a pro and what he's achieving. And I think he's still got so much more to come in his career. I thought it was really exciting to find out a little bit about a different side to um, the pro peloton there. What do you think, Lionel? Yeah, well, first of all, just it made me look at the map of Denmark because uh, the number of little islands uh, around the, the main uh, the mainland of Denmark, and of course, next year is going to be huge, isn't it, for Danish cycling because the Tour de France, the Grand Depart, will be in Copenhagen, uh, delayed, of course, because of the pandemic. But uh, fingers crossed, we'll all be in Denmark for the start of the Tour de France in 2022 and uh, that will be a big year I'm sure he'll be wanting to be on the start line there and there's a real big Danish contingent now in the peloton I think there were 11 Danes in the Tour de France this year weren't there um, so it's a uh, It's a it's a big country, and as uh, I was talking to Daniel Freib on the regular cycling podcast, and he was talking about the the intensity of the media spotlight from the Danes. Lots of TV crews and news crews and journalists from Denmark uh, follow cycling. More Danes covering the tour than Slovenians, which you, you know might sound a bit strange considering uh, Pogacar has been dominant uh, this year. Um, but yeah, a big, big cycling nation, Denmark. So it's interesting to hear about uh, Magnus's uh, journey from the beginning into the pro sport. And it just made me think about your experience on this side of the fence, Mitch. And I wondered what you made of how little of the actual race the journalists get to see because of all the ground they have to cover. I mean, I, and whether you thought at a Grand Tour, you know, you sometimes see the same journalist at the start and the at the finish you know you've ridden 200 kilometers in between and you've probably not visualized what their day's been like but now you know it's funny you say that um because as a cyclist you think you're sort of going along at a sort of slow pace in comparison to a car or whatever that may be but actually it's pretty tight by the time you see the riders off you're behind the riders and they have the direct route obviously an open road The, the route that they go on and for you to get around that route and get to the finish you have to do some big you know big loop 
And it's quite difficult even to get there much time before the finish of the race. It seems ridiculous. You're like, hang on, these guys are riding bikes, yet I can't even get in a car and get there much time before they ride there. Um, by the time you get in the traffic and you get stuck behind this and that and go on a big loop, it is. it blew me away how big the Tour de France is outside of the race. Really huge. And you need to, everyone says it, and you need to see it for yourself. First time for me, how much the roads were blocked off, how much, you know, like I said, without that gold pass, you know, or the golden sticker on the car, you can't get anywhere. So it was really interesting to see that. Also, like you just said with the Danes, a massive Danish media around the Danish riders. They're doing so well. There's such a big presence in the peloton and they're really heavily followed. You see all the Danes come up at the start of the race. They go straight across to the TV, do their interviews there. And it's almost like it's pre-organized. Like you said, they contact the, the media um, managers from each team who organise them to come over there. So if you, by the time they finish with the TV, you're lucky enough to get a little snippet. Um, Michael Morkov, of course, is very good to come across and he's really interesting to talk to as well. Um, and just a little idea of how big they are in their own country, I think. Cycling as a, as a nation, it's, it's very popular over there. And what about the... You know the, the 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 journey around. Well, your your part was, I guess, kicked off in Andorra somewhere. You know very well, of course, because you're uh, based a lot of the time there. But uh, then the journey up to Paris. I guess you saw, um, you know, what what life is like for not just the media, but also everyone else is working on the race um, that just doesn't happen to be in a team bubble. You know, there's so much, so many people, isn't there? You know, whether it's the, the, the race organizers and, and, you know, often you'll see people from the Tour de France organization, um, in restaurants or whatever, if you're staying in big towns particularly, but just like you say that the size of the race is, uh, is something that until you see it, you can't quite get your head around and it's another level beyond the Giro even, isn't it? Just the size of the Tour de France. Another level, you know, and it, again, you don't realize, I probably don't realize how big the Giro is because I've never traveled around the outside of it, always been inside the cycling bubble. And like I said, the path is cleared for you and you go directly to the hotel, the riders are number one. So you don't really get an idea of how big those races are until you come as either a fan or as someone on the outside. I think something that also was interesting for me was you just imagine you're going to see everyone who works on this race you know maybe see Bradley Wiggins or maybe I'll see Simon Gerrans who's doing some commentary I didn't see any of those people you know it's it's so big there's such a big amount of people involved in this they can be in some hotel 50k away and the next day another hotel 20k away you just don't see them um yes you do see the other media sort of journalists who are in your you know the mix zone there and you you strike up a good relationship with them and sort of maybe try and race them to the end of the race or, you know, see where they're going to have dinner that night, which is a really nice atmosphere as well. Um, I think part of it is also enjoying being on tour um, and making it is work, but making it enjoyable work. And I think that's been portrayed really well in the cycling podcast is that it's a journey for us too. And you're coming on the journey with us, traveling the tour and experiencing the culture and that's part of it as well and I think it'd be really silly to do it the other way and make it into a small Ibis hotel and you know go straight to the start straight to the finish hang on we're traveling around France too you know just I I love that part too and I try and do that as much as I can as a writer which is probably about five percent compared to what you get to do as a journalist I think it's really important to you know take it all in as well yeah i mean these races are you know three week long adverts for the the countries that host them and it's why um, foreign cities such as copenhagen next year pay so much money to host the starts of the grand tours isn't it um it, it it's an opportunity for people to um, see th- these countries uh, almost uh, the, the work that the tourist boards uh, you know they, they can't really do they can reach parts that uh, you know conventional advertising uh, maybe doesn't and all of that um all of that culture the cuisine and the, and well i was going to say mitch you you put your own stamp on it uh, by introducing the, the craft beer element which is something that uh, you know france is so well known for its uh, fantastic wine but there's a real growing craft beer um, industry in france and uh, it was great to 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 basically have a, a week of the cycling brewcast i'm uh, hoping that uh, that we might get that uh, again in the future i hope it won't be your last stint on uh, on a grand tour for us 
No, I would love to come back. And I thought it was funny to introduce that. And the craft beer scene was out of control in the Pyrenees. I loved it. There was just so much beer around. Too much beer to drink. Well, I don't know if that's that's correct, but there was a lot of beer around. Um, I'd love to come back. And I hope everyone enjoyed hearing my voice on that format. Um, got some great feedback. So I did want to also say, seeing as we're talking about Denmark... I was actually up just before I did this up in Sweden, very close. I actually flew out of Copenhagen in the end um, to come back. I did this event called The Length of Sweden. I was talking about it before I went up there. And that is going to be, we'll just give you a quick idea of that is literally what it sounds like. I started in the very top of Sweden and rode to the very bottom. Um, It's almost like it is a beret event where you just, everyone heads off at their own time takes them some guys do it in four days it took me seven days to do it and it was a real journey an amazing experience i met so many great people along the way and i actually took a little microphone with me and did some recordings along the way that is going to be my next episode of uh, life in the peloton it's a slightly different peloton but i just thought you know what this bike packing this adventuring scene is sort of exploding at the moment and i thought well how about i give you a little insight to what it's like being on the road and why these people do this why people go out even do it on their own ride all night ride for all these hours and why other people do it like the way i did it ride you know 10 hours a day and sleep in a hotel why are we doing this stuff what are we getting out of this and i interviewed some people along the way going to put that together for you next time that'll be in two weeks time but if you enjoyed magnus now the talking Loof series is up and running again i've done a talking Loof with magnus that'll be across at life in the peloton next week so make sure you tune in with that And guys, if you haven't seen already on social media, the Life in the Peloton kit is out, out in the world. I've actually seen one kit rolling around in person, which was pretty cool. So make sure you keep looking out for that. And if you do want to get that, there is still some coming over on the Raffle website. That'll be coming in the next few weeks. So keep your eyes ready for that. And guys, once again, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy Life in the Peloton being back. So guys, thanks very much for tuning in. And until next time, cheers. You have been listening to Life in the Peloton. The producer of this episode was Will Jones. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Thanks, mate.